are in the second Sunday in Lent, and we are continuing our sermon series, Wilderness. And during the sermon series, Mark kicked it off last week, but we are looking at real people and their stories from the wilderness. Uh, We are looking at people in the Old Testament, particularly the Hebrew people, as they travel through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And we are also looking at stories of the wilderness from people here at Martha Bowman. Uh, Last week, you heard from LC and just her courage and her vulnerability uh, to share with you about a very real time when she was in experiencing a wilderness. I know Mark kicked this off last week, but just to kind of recap, when we think about the wilderness, uh, for the Hebrew people, for the people of God uh, that lived in that area, New Testament and Old Testament, the wilderness was a, was a geographical location. Uh, they could easily look up and see the wilderness, especially the Hebrew people as they traveled through the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. John the Baptist, uh, most of his ministry was in the wilderness. Uh, it was in the Sinai region where, where God spoke to Abraham. Uh, so for them, it was a very real place. It was a place that was arid. It was a place that was dry. It was a place that was rugged. It was a place of wild animals. Uh, you think about back in the day, uh, they needed to live in fortified cities. That, is, that was a protective kind of thing. You would have a city. You would have a wall around that would protect you from your enemies. In the wilderness, you were exposed. You were vulnerable. You feel alone. You feel danger. And so when the, the writers of the Bible, when they spoke of the wilderness, it was a geographic location, but it was also a metaphor for those seasons and those times in our life when God seems distant, when spiritually we feel dry, when we feel vulnerable, when we feel alone, when we feel afraid. And so as we are looking at this, these stories from the wilderness, both in the Bible and in our congregation, stories that people have shared, we're asking the question, what do you do when you are in the wilderness? What can sustain your faith when you are in the wilderness? How do you, with courage and tenacity, how do you get to the other side as you go through this season? And hopefully my prayer for you today and my prayer for me is that God would meet us here just like he met the Hebrew people in the wilderness, just like he sent his angel to meet with Jesus when Jesus was in the wilderness. My prayer is that God will speak to us this morning and that he will sense, you will sense his heart and his love for you. And it will be a word that sustains you if you are currently in a season of wilderness. But to kick us off this morning, I want to invite you to watch our video for today, our story from the wilderness. And this is from Max Wood. Max is a member here at Martha Bowman. He typically worships in the traditional service with his family. And he is going to share with us his story from the wilderness. I invite you to watch. My name is Max Wood. I've been a member of Martha Bowman Church for over 20 years, along with my family. Uh, In the summer of 2005, uh, I deployed to Baghdad, Iraq, uh, in the middle of the Middle East and in the middle of the wilderness. Uh, It was a very challenging time. Uh, I was uh, working seven days a week, 10, sometimes 12 hours a day. I was working in a very dangerous environment and there would often be explosions going off and we knew that when we heard an explosion that meant that someone somewhere was dead. When that happens almost every day or every other day, uh, it starts to, to weigh on you. 
when we would go into Baghdad, uh, frankly, I would get uh, quite worried. I would literally feel my chest tighten. I would get nervous. Uh, I would not eat. We would go in uh, armored vehicles, three armored vehicles in a, in a caravan with armed guards. It was a very serious, uh, dangerous undertaking that took a lot of planning. And I would begin praying uh, the prayer of Jabez. I pray you'll bless me indeed. I pray you'll expand my territory. I pray your hand will be with me. I pray you'll keep me from evil. Um, and I would pray that uh, every morning, multiple times, uh, because I was, I was very, very worried. It was a very, very stressful time. We were regularly having rockets shot into the embassy grounds. Sometimes they missed and sometimes they hit the embassy and, and people were injured and people were killed. In, in addition to those stresses was the stress of my work environment, my colleagues, that I, the 20 people that I worked with in the same room. Uh, neither of those people were uh, people that expressed anything about their faith. And I felt like it was uh, wrong for me to go to the chapel services that were offered, that were in fact offered at the embassy every Sunday, numerous chapel services. Because I felt like I would be viewed as not working as hard as everyone else, and I was the boss. Finally, after about uh, a month, I was able to take a, a short trip to Jordan. And there are two things you do when you go to Jordan for two days. You go look at Petra, the ancient city, and then uh, you go to the, the Dead Sea. And I went to the Dead Sea, and while I was at the Dead Sea, I began to realize the significance of where I was, the land where Abraham was called to a covenant with God, uh, the land where Daniel was put into the lion's den. And I began to realize that the worst thing I could do was not put my focus on Jesus Christ while I was in such a place. And I resolved to go back in, to get back to Baghdad and, and go to uh, the chapel service, regardless of whatever feedback I might get from my colleagues. And I began to realize that uh, I, I should not be worrying about what my colleagues thought that really what I had was an audience of one, uh, Jesus Christ. That's who I needed to be trying to please. And when I focused on Jesus Christ and my Christian faith, and when I surrounded myself with other Christians, things began to change. And what began as a career uh, ended up being a uh, spiritual journey of a lifetime that uh, changed my life forever. If you're spending 40 days in the wilderness, whether it's a real wilderness, which is where I was, or whether it's a spiritual wilderness or a financial wilderness, you're in good company because our Savior went through a wilderness and came through that journey ready to do God's will in His life. And perhaps that's what's happening in your life. I know that's what was happening in my life. My name is Max Wood and this is my story from the wilderness. Amen. Well, what a what a powerful story from one of our own, and and I know that probably many things struck you um, as you were listening to his story, but I think some of the things that stood out to me that are going to connect with uh, the story today in the Bible that we're looking at is that this wilderness that Max was in was it was a 
physical, uh, a very real wilderness, uh, that there were literally bombs being shot overhead. There were literally, he was working seven days a week, 10 and 12 hours. Uh, Their lives were in danger. Max has written a book about his experiences, and if you're interested, I can get you a copy. But he talks about even when they went from point A to point B, uh, all the, all the, the, I don't even know how, all the logistical work that had to go into that is they were in these armored vehicles, and and literally their life was in danger as he went to serve our nation uh, in in the Baghdad, and so his was a very real wilderness journey, a very physical uh, danger that he was in, and yet he describes it as the spiritual journey of a lifetime. And I think in those words right there, you see the tension between the experience and what it is and what that experience can become in your life. Let's look now, if you've got your bulletins, I want to invite you, as we look at the scriptures today that we've got, and I want us to, I want us to take a moment and we're going to look at a group of people and their wilderness in the scriptures and kind of how this journey turned out for them. Um, in our scripture here, let me just set this up. This is from the book of Exodus. So the Hebrew people have been slaves in Egypt for over 500 years. Moses comes. There's this great deliverance. They go through the Red Sea, and now they have just begun their journey into the wilderness, a literal physical place very near where Max was when he talks about being in Baghdad, the same geographic area, very close. Um, And they are on their way to the place that God has promised them. And let's join in and listen in to their story. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. If you're taking notes, I want to invite you to take a pen or a pencil or highlight or whatever you've got. And I want to invite you to circle that phrase, as the Lord commanded. For you see, Israel was in the wilderness, but not out of disobedience to God, but at the direction of God. As they began this journey into a place that was arid, a place that was dry, a place that was barren, a place where they were vulnerable as they had never been before, it was a place that they were going into as the Lord commanded. Sometimes when we are in a wilderness, we ask the question, God, what's wrong? What have I done? You know, is it my sin? Have I, have I, have I neglected something? Uh, what, what is it? Why did I, why, do you love me, Lord? What, are you listening to my prayers? You're asking the questions, why God? You know, where, God, I'm, I'm praying, I'm asking you, and, and you're, you're not answering my prayers. You seem so distant. It seems so hard. And sometimes we feel abandoned by God. Sometimes we feel that we've done something, that we're not lovable, that we're not enough for God to provide and rescue and care for us. But the Hebrew people, they were in the wilderness, and it says there, as the Lord commanded. For you see, God could see where he wanted to take them, which was the promised land. And they had heard that, Moses had told them, but they couldn't quite see it yet. They had never experienced it. It was a, maybe was it a pipe dream? It was a hope. And it says there that they camped, but as they camped, there was no water 
for the people to drink. And the thing that I want us to hold on to this morning is when, when Moses writes this, we, we believe that Moses wrote the book of Exodus, and when he writes that statement, there was no water for the people to drink. This is not a metaphor. This is not, uh, you know, this stands for this. This is their experience. When you look at what the, the Egypt was like, the, the Nile basin there, uh, you can look at pictures on the internet for, you know, that area, but it is very lush. It is very green. It is full of, uh, there's plenty of water, so to speak. You know, you think about in the South when we've had a lot of rain and maybe it's the spring and the summer and everything just turns green. That's kind of what uh, Egypt was like and where they were coming from. And now at God's direction, there is physically no water. There's literally nothing to drink at that moment. You know, it's just like as Max was saying, these weren't imaginary bombs and rockets that were going over his head. These were real bombs and rockets. They were really in danger. It wasn't a metaphor. So here they say there was no water for the people to drink. And so they quarreled with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. So when you're in the wilderness, sometimes that feeling of, of powerlessness, that feeling that I can't control my, my, my circumstances, I can't control, I can't, I can't, you know, work my way out of this. I can't pull myself up by the bootstraps. And so sometimes anger Anger is a natural response. Sometimes we want to blame somebody because what's underneath that is fear and a feeling of powerless. Does God love me? Does God care? And sometimes those those feelings that are deep down in the in the in our soul that that it begins to kind of express itself in anger. And that's where that's what they did. They projected that anger onto Moses and they said, "Give us water to drink." And then Moses replied and he said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. I think a secondary thing, one is anger, that, that we, we see that pop out. It's like that is, that is sometimes what we do. Another thing is we begin to so often grumble and complain about our circumstances. Lord, why does this person seem to have the great job? Why does it seem like they're the golden child and everything works out for them and I'm working still in a low paying job and I'm struggling to make my ends meet and I've got a college degree but why can't these doors open for me like they seem to be opening for my friend or my neighbor or Lord why does this person's kids always seem like they're doing everything great they're getting all the awards their 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 child goes to church their their child is is getting into the right schools but Lord my child is struggling my child is struggling maybe with with some special needs issues or maybe my child is struggling with alcohol. My child is still struggling. Why does it seem like it works out for that family, but it's not working out for me? And so why, you know, the, the grumbling, the complaining, the comparing, that is sometimes what we naturally, kind of in our broken humanity, want to do. The next thing the scriptures tell us here, they do what I think we so often do. They ask the question, and they said, why? Why? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt and make us and our children livestock die of thirst? Why? Why, God? If you're a good God, why did you let this happen? God, if you are all-powerful, why can't you answer my prayers? Why are you so late in answering my prayers? Oh, God, if you are all-knowing, why did you send me into this barren wasteland? Why, God, why did you do this? And they begin to ask the questions that we as humans so naturally ask. 
And then Moses cried out. And this is the question that he asked. He says, and if you've got a pen or pencil, I invite you to circle this next question because I think this is so powerful. He asked this question and he says, what am I to do? What am I to do? Have you ever been at that place where you felt so desperate, you felt so alone, you felt like it was so hard, and you asked the question, God, what, what, what am I to do? What am I to do here? I'm so angry at my spouse because of what he or she did, and I can't let it go. God, what am I to do? When everything before you, I can't control it, and you're asking the question, what am I to do? In this story here, painted so beautifully and so honestly for us as Moses, Moses doesn't sugarcoat it, but I think we see the questions that we all ask so often. Where are you, God? Why? What am I to do? Our next passage that I have there for you in our bulletin, I think gives us the answer. I think it gives us the hope. Whereas the Israelites, they stayed in that wilderness. God had led them into that wilderness. But y'all, it wasn't intended ever to last for 40 years. But it was because of their disobedience. And you can read about this in the book of Numbers. But it was because of their lack of faith and because of their disobedience that that journey, instead of it being maybe a, you know, a two or three month journey, it ended up being 40 long, hard years. Jesus was in the wilderness, and it was 40 days, and there was an end to that season. So I think our attitude and how we respond can also impact spiritually what that season looks like. You know, I think about Max, and, and I think about his story, and it says that he was there at the Dead Sea. There, um, you know, when you look at a map of Israel, you see the Dead Sea. They're very arid, very arid. I've been there myself. And he says, it just, he's, I can't remember his exact words, but basically it's like he had his his aha moment. You know, like, what am I doing? This is not the place to neglect God. This is the place to lean into the God that I love, the God that, no, I might not be in, in Macon, Georgia. I might not be able to go to worship every, every week at Martha Bowman. I might not have my men's group, my Bible study, whatever that looks like, but I still can find God in the wilderness, and he moved toward God. In our next passage, we look at Jesus. And I think this is, you know, that what am I to do? I think our first step is to move towards Jesus. And in our passage today, which is so perfect for Lent, as we are getting ready to celebrate Easter and the resurrection, the resurrection only makes sense as we see it through the cross and through the lens of the cross. And in our passage today, Jesus, like the Hebrew people, was thirsty. And he cries out on the cross, I thirst. And as he says those words, I just wonder if in his mind and those who were there, John, his, his beloved disciple, his mom was there, Mary Magdalene. And I wonder if he's, when he said these words, I thirst, if they could hear the Hebrew people in the wilderness saying, I thirst, God, I thirst. And, and as he is hanging there, we know that he is moments away from death. He is moments away from death, John the gospel writer tells us. And <clears throat> excuse me, he says later, knowing that everything had been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. 
I am thirsty. Some of you might have had the opportunity to be with someone in the last 24 to 48 hours of their life. Uh, my father, when he passed away, um, he had had a, a stroke and was in the nursing home. But as he was coming to the end of his life, those last, you know, 24, 48 hours, his his brain forgot how to swallow. He had also well, he had the stroke and then dementia and Alzheimer's. But, but his brain, they told us, forgot how to swallow wallow, but he was thirsty, and we could tell, and so we would take, um, they gave us there in, in the in the nursing home, they gave us, it was like a little straw kind of thing, but on the end of it was a sponge, and we would take the sponge, and we would put some water on it, and we would swab out his mouth to, to help him with just have some water to just dry the parchedness of his mouth and his throat there in the last bit of his life before we went to be with Jesus, and I think in the same way that Jesus is here at the end. He's dehydrated. He's been, he's, he's lost almost, he's lost all this blood and he is physically thirsty. This is not a metaphor. This is, I mean, we can look all kind of meanings and things into this and, and extract all kinds of theological things that might've been going on. But I think at the most basic of all human, human, you know, the basic level, he was a man, <clears throat> fully God, but fully man. And he is thirsty as a man who is about to die. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it and they put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and they lifted it up to his lips. So there at the cross, uh, the wine vinegar that they're talking about, this is a, a, a poor man's drink. Back in the day before chlorination and all the good stuff that we put in our water to make it, you know, where it doesn't kill us, uh, they, they put a little bit of wine vinegar in the water. And this would keep it from spoiling. This would keep it from getting you sick. And so it was, it was the wine of the soldiers. Uh, and so there, maybe for the soldiers to drink, we don't know, there was this wine vinegar and Jesus asked for something. Now, one of the things that John doesn't tell us, but I think is so interesting, was that earlier in the day, earlier in the day, before Jesus was hung on the cross, as they were going to Golgotha there, do you know that Jesus was offered something to drink, and in that moment, he refused it? Matthew and Mark tells us that earlier in the day, someone had tried to give Jesus, uh, and it was wine, but it was mixed with, uh, one tells us it was mixed with myrrh, another tells us it was mixed with gall. But Jesus did not take that drink. Do you know why? Do you wonder why? Do you, myrrh and gall, the same things are used interchangeably there. Uh, the, the literally, uh, the translation for the word gall, it means poison. That it was a, an act of mercy. They say that sometimes women were there at the cross and as an act of mercy, they would give those who were about to be crucified this mixture of wine that had this poison in it, this, this anesthesia, if you will. Something too, as they were about to go experience the most horrific thing ever, something that would take the edge off, something that would help cloud their mind and cloud their senses so they couldn't completely, so it would just be almost like, you know, when you're going into surgery and they, they start putting the good stuff in your veins, it's like all of a sudden, you know, it all goes away and you kind of slip into that oblivion. It was a poison that could have possibly kill, killed him early so he didn't have to go through all that pain. Jesus in that moment refuses that drink because I believe that he did not want to have 
have something to take the edge off. He didn't want something to mask the pain because he was going to the cross to fulfill a promise that had been made back in the book of Genesis that one day the Savior would come and break the power of sin and death. He was dying for you. He was dying for me. And so in that moment, he wanted to fully experience and be present for the work that he was doing on the cross for you and for me. So he refused that drink, but now in this moment, he accepts the drink. And the scripture says that they put it on a stalk of a hyssop plant there. And John is so, I love John. I mean, I love all the gospel writers, but John here is, is, is telling us something. Some have questioned, was this literally what happened or not? Because the hyssop plant it's really more like a, like, a, like a herb or something like that. Uh, and so it doesn't really have a stalk, but it's almost something that is more brush-like, if that can make sense. You know, something has like a lot of soft stalks on it. And one of the things that the hyssop plant was known for throughout Scripture, you might remember in the book of Exodus when the people of God were leaving Egypt, it was the night of the Passover. They were to slaughter a Passover lamb. Some of you who grew up in church, you know this story. And then what the Hebrew people were to do, they were to take the blood of the lamb and they were to dip the hyssop plant in it. And then they were to paint the blood over their doorpost of their house. And the death angel who was, you know, coming and, and we know from, you know, the book of Exodus that where the Egyptians were killed, the firstborn, but the death angel would pass over the houses of those who had brushed the blood over their homes with the hyssop plant. So what was John pointing to? Why does, why does John say this? John's saying it, I think, because he wants us to know that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is the one that allows the death angel, so to speak, to pass over us. And so John gives us this detail that this is the lamb of God that has been promised through the book of Exodus, all through the scriptures, that one day that would die for humanity. In the Old Testament, and especially in the Levitical law, you would see the hyssop plant that it was often used in the sacrificial offerings as a symbol of cleansing, uh, a symbol of being redeemed from our sins. Uh, David, when he ascended with Bathsheba, he asked the Lord, he says, purify me, with the purify me with hyssop. And he said, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. So John is bringing all this imagery together. And he says that they took the sponge and they put it on the the hyssop plant, and they lifted it up to his lips. Then in that moment after that, John writes and he says, and when Jesus had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. One of the reasons, you know, when you, when you look at commentaries and you see what others have written about this passage, there's lots of things that people say, well, why did he take the drink? You know, why did he need something then? What did he mean? I, I think the reason that Jesus, and there are many reasons, but this is Fran's reason. You can come up with your own. I think that the reason that he wanted that drink just then, and John's weaving all this rich, rich imagery in there, I think it's because he had one last thing 
that he wanted to say. And I think in that moment, he was so dehydrated that his vocal cords couldn't, couldn't voice the words. Have you ever had that where maybe you've had a cold or an allergy? Right now, I know it's pollen season and, you know, we've got pollen everywhere. And sometimes you open your mouth and you're about to say something, but it's like your voice won't work because your vocal cords are dry. And I really believe at the most basic level, Jesus was thirsty. He wanted this drink because I think he had one last thing to say. And John tells us here, it's translated there in front of you, and it's translated in most Bibles by saying, it is finished. But in the Greek, do you know what it is? It's just one word. Teleos is the, is the, the, the Greek root there. Basically, he said, finished, you know, like really loud and really strong. You know, I think about when I've done something, I don't know, maybe when I've cleaned my house or I've done something that it's like, it wasn't a pleasant thing to do. And finally I go, woo, finished, you know, and I think that's what he was doing right there is that much more significant than me cleaning my house. He's dying for, you know, dying for the sins of the world. But I think that's what he wanted to cry out. And I think that's what he wanted to say, finished. It is done. It is done. It is finished. John then gives us this sweet, beautiful detail that I think only an eyewitness would have picked up on. And then he says that with that, then Jesus bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And it's almost the idea like you would put your head down and you would fall asleep. It was gentle. Um, That's how I'm imagining it. It was putting your head down and he goes to sleep. So in this passage, let's go back to Moses' question. Moses asked the question, what am I to do? What am I to do? And I think in moments of wilderness, we, can be, we might be tempted to do what the Israelites did, to grumble, to complain, to get angry, to, to you know, lose hope, to lose faith. But I think what Jesus would have us do is to remember and to meditate and to focus on the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who carried his people through the wilderness, the God who promises to never leave us and forsake us. And in that moment, to trust in God, not in our emotions that are so fickle and the doubts that are going through our head. I want to invite you, I I didn't get this in the bulletin, but this morning as I was having my quiet time, it was brief. Don't think I'm all that spiritual, but very briefly before I came to church this morning, I just sat down and I, you know, went to the Psalms and I actually came to Psalm 63 and I thought, oh my gosh, this is exactly what we're talking about today. And David has written a Psalm from the wilderness. And in the beginning of this Psalm, and and I'm going to bring this around because I think this answers the question, what am I to do? What am I to do? And, And he says, oh God, you're my God and I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And so David is experiencing literally a wilderness, but also metaphorically a wilderness. And he, and in this psalm, he talks about meditating on God is kind of what is going to sustain him. And I do believe that's our answer. We meditate on what Jesus has done. And he says, and he, I love this. This is in verse six. He says, when I think of you on my bed and I meditate on you in the watches of the night, he says, you have been my help. 
He goes back, and as he's going to bed at night, and I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I have a hard time falling asleep because sometimes my mind just can, can roll over and over and over and over. Do y'all, anybody like that? Okay, I, saw, I see those hands. It's like, well, what about this, and what about that? And you can worry, and you can begin to let that loop, the little hamster loop go in your head. And David says, no, no. I am not going to let my mind race around like a hamster on a wheel. I don't think they had hamster wheels back then, but if they did, he might have said that. And he says, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus my attention. I'm going to focus my thoughts. I'm going to be disciplined and intentional here. And he said, I am going to think of you on my bed. I'm going to meditate on you in the watches of the night. And he says, for you have been my help. He's going to remember the times that God has been his help. He is going to combat the lies of the devil that says, God doesn't love you. God's not with you. God can't help you. God doesn't hear you. you are, you're never going to get out of this. He says, no, I'm going to remember the times that God has been faithful. And he said, I am going to remember that. And then he says, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. And he begins to imagine that God, and I don't, I don't know what this might look like for you, but that somehow that God's wings are spreading over him in the wilderness. And he is so close to God that he is in the shadow of God's protective care. He said, in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. He forces himself sometimes to sing. Sometimes when you don't feel like it, he forces himself to sing those songs in the wilderness. He said, my soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life, no way. They will go down into the depths of the earth. My fear, my anxiety, my grumbling, all those things that seek to just kind of undo me, no, those things will not have any power over me because I'm going to meditate on your goodness. And so as we close today, I want to leave you with this. And, um, and Joseph, if you want to pull this, this quote up here, I think the answer to Moses' question, what do I do? What do I do, God? What's next? I think the answer is we remember God's goodness to us and we meditate on what Jesus has done for us in the shadow of the cross. We sing his praises. What I want to invite you to do now is I want us, when Jesus said, it is finished, this is what I believe is finished this is who our Savior is. Hear these words from Adam Hamilton. Jesus is our Redeemer, our Savior, our High Priest. He is our Passover Lamb. He is our Liberator and the King who is willing to die for His people. Through His death, He reveals our sinfulness, the costliness of grace, and the magnitude of God's mercy. And on the cross, He shows us what love looks like. In His death and resurrection, He identifies with our pain, suffering, and human mortality. And in His resurrection, He proves that He has overcome each of these Jesus was doing all of this on the cross to redeem, to save, and to draw humanity to himself. This was the it that was finished as Jesus shouted his dying words. Jesus, like the Hebrew people, said, I am thirsty. They were thirsty, but they grumbled. 
Jesus was thirsty and he was given water mixed with wine and vinegar so that he could moisten his vocal cords so he could proclaim with the loudest voice to all he would hear, it is finished, it is finished. And with this good news, we have hope, hope for God's presence, God's grace, God's redemption as we walk through our wilderness. Imagine how that season will be different based on your orientation. Think of Max. He said, in that season of wilderness, it became the greatest spiritual journey of his life. Not because his circumstances changed, because the God of the wilderness walked with him every step of the way. And that same God of the wilderness will walk with you and walk with me as we go through our times of wilderness.